Hello and welcome to Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from Kingston University, London. My name is Andrew Clancy. In this episode, we are joined by Crispin Kelly, the developer and architect. We talk through his life's work in making housing projects and making money, and the balance between the two, the difficult art of making a community and making space for architects such as Peter Salter and the nature of working on site with him in the making of Walmer Yard. In a wide-ranging interview, we discussed whether making money might be bad for the soul, and also the necessity to learn from past mistakes and successes in housing models in the building of new sustainable communities in peripheral locations. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, Crispin, uh, thank you so much for coming in. Um, I suppose the first question is, you're a historian, you're an architect, you're a developer. How do you describe your your activities, I mean? Um, I suppose they all involve in some way um, things to do with things being built yes. or building. Um, so yeah, that's really what joins them all together, I think. And your interest in this started, was the development of family business or was that...? No, I mean, I started, um, I studied history at university, yeah. a medieval history. And I suppose that thread has continued in the sense of like, gathering together material and um, writing, you know, coordinating. Um, and I suppose it's become more into focus for me um, in looking at the sort of development of the English house, for example. Yeah. And so I think a lot of my interests are interests about things as they've evolved over time. Yeah. And that they have a, they have a heritage which I respect. So I think that's quite a strong thing for me. So this would be you know, the deep evolution of the house, as traced in a way by Matthesius. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Through to its influences on the continent, obviously. Yeah, yeah. we've got lots of fans yeah. on the continent, more on the continent than here, probably. Well, the influence of, 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 of... Well, the English tend to underestimate their influence culturally. Yeah. Which is an interesting... Yeah. I can say as an outsider. Yeah. Um, and so you, so you became obsessed by this lineage, and that's what kind of provoked you to start examining building yourself in a way? Yes, I think, I think um, it probably wasn't quite as sort of linear as that, but it's sort of, you know, when I um, came to London after university, I looked for a flat, and when I looked for a flat, I sort of got interested in building. Yeah. And after I'd done a bit of building, I became interested in design. And then the sort of history thing joined into that. Um, and I suppose that what interested me about the house was the idea that a long time ago, like a thousand years ago, we either lived with the person who was in charge of us or we lived in a hovel. And the progress to living in your own house, I think, is remarkable. And it sort of is the story of privacy, mm. how we got space for ourselves and um, how we got sort of sanitary conditions. Mm. And so everything else from now is sort of extra, I think. You know, the sort of the democratization of how we live is a fairly amazing thing. Hmm. And um, maybe there are 23 million units of accommodation in Britain and 80, over 80% 80 of those are houses. So it's a sort of huge thing that's been achieved, which I think has the opportunity of giving people something special. And I sort of feel it's our obligation as developers and architects to make it special, you know, to not just to make it every day in a sort of bad way. And is it, is it fair to say, though, that I mean, you're staking your personal livelihood on that ethical position, 
Which isn't always the case in the world of development for obvious reasons. <laughs> How delicate is that line between sentiment and commerce? I mean, these things, is it, is it as divergent as one might think or is it not at all? Is it much more congruent? Um, I think that, you know, any development that I undertake, I've got to do on the basis that it's going to make money. Yeah. I, I think that development that you do because you're exploring something is not that interesting. It has to... It has to have an audience and it has to have a sort of financial logic, particularly if you're hoping that things are going to be useful you know, and, and maybe imitated or copied. Um, you know, people are not going to copy something that's a disaster. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's a sort of fundamental financial viability that's got to, be, got to underlie anything that you undertake, almost anything. Mm. And it's absolutely the case that architecture, I find anyway, benefits in those arguments because it allows its essentials to become explicit. You know, that abrasion between the world which calls architecture to being and architecture as an autonomous discourse, that's where it gets its power because it basically allows architecture to speak about society to an extent. But what I find interesting is that you do seek out architects with resistance. I mean, you seek out architects that are thoughtful people who would be coming up with positions which would be maybe sometimes counter to what might be most economically feasible. And that's something that you do consciously and deliberately as a cultural action, but also as a commercial one. And I'm interested in that process. I'm interested in how you identify them, how you work with them, yeah. how you crit the work, how it develops. I mean, can you speak a bit about that? There are lots of questions There's there. too many, I Yeah, suppose. I think... Um the question often is, you know, if you sort of labour at the quality of the product, is there any benefit in the market? Mm. You know, or is it just like, you know, it's four bedrooms and it's four bedrooms? And I think my, my experience is that the higher you go up the value, the bigger the difference. Mm. So you're rewarded for quality more as you go up. But at the bottom of the market, I think there's such an um, inability of people to afford housing that the sort of thresholds are, are relatively fixed. So, for example, the scheme we did in Aldershot, you know, you might say that we got like a 10% premium, mm. but you know, that was probably not a sort of a very sensible financial decision to do the extra things that we did there because it would cost more than 10%. Mm. Uh, whereas at Warmer Yard, I think that the premium should be much bigger. We're yet to find out, but um, I'm hoping that it'll be much bigger because the sort of value is seen much more by the market and that it's much more flexible. Mm. Um, so that's one thing. Remind me of one of the other strands. So let's just take, because you do have an interest in affordability. I mean, it's an yeah. expressed position and, say, the periphery. And so in the context of trying to produce something affordable and yet find space for quality, yeah. I mean, there's a degree of you having an expertise beyond what the architects, and then you introduce architects into that conversation. And how does that work? I mean, how do you ensure that they have the space to do what they need to do and yet it's a supportive but critical conversation to ensure that your interest in terms of... Yeah, I think one of the things I often say to, to the architects that I work with is, you know, what's good about this scheme? Mm. And um, I think that's quite a challenging question because they're sort of doing what they want to do but then they have to articulate um, to me what's good about it. And I think there are fairly easily identifiable things that you can say are better than what our competition might be doing. But I think it's good discipline to actually say what is good about it. And 
um, I think in the more affordable housing, that is a much simpler discussion. You, know, you can say, well, what's good about this is that it's got one room which has got a higher ceiling than the other rooms, and that gives a sense of hierarchy to this house, which the competition doesn't have. Or we have made the bedrooms upstairs sort of nestle into the roof space, so they are interesting spaces with sloped ceilings. Mm. Or the windows are a bit bigger. Mm. Or any, any simple thing that we can actually say, this has made a better house, and the financial cost of that is relatively low. Mm. So it's a question of knowing it at the beginning and you know, setting about it in the, the best um, economical way. So I think that's a sort of, that's my sort of point of departure really, in terms of, the, of making a house. And then you go into a sort of conversation about if you're assembling lots of houses together, what extra have you got to be doing to mm -hmm. make um, people get along together, or to make some emerging sense of a place? Mm -hmm. Which, um, going back to the point at the beginning about history, I think we've got a fantastic sort of um, series of examples of places that work um, because of things that people share. And manage yeah so you know this doesn't need to be that much that's new it's just really a question of um using the stuff that we already know about and having the confidence to actually to do it and making space for that care and what's interesting about that is that here the development model is very much to produce um houses for sale and actually a lot of what you're saying there in the second half of what you described is much more subtle and it gives dignity to life over a longer period of time. People might be less willing to trade up because they might stay in the community that's been yep. established there. Which is, what I find fascinating about all this is that you're speaking beyond your immediate expediency as a commercial brain. These things are true, but they would be much more valuable to you if you were making, say, lifetime rental kind of yep. lifespan. There's obviously a benefit to that and you can see in Denmark the benefits of that culture where it's a rental culture and they're invested in keeping people in those buildings for a long period of time. So this, what I guess I'm saying is there's a, there's a morality at work there, which is a cultural morality that is beyond your, well, from the outside, it seems to be beyond the strict necessities of economic. Is that true or am I overreading it? Um, is everything so traceable to a benefit to the bottom line or is some of it just there because you believe in it? I think you've got to you've got to have a position where you think some things are right and some things are wrong. Um, I think that uh, the saying that everything has got a financial value is a difficult yeah. argument in our position. You know, we want to do things that are good and that we feel proud of. Um, and you know, a, a concept like beauty is something that you're not necessarily going to say right. Well, that's got an extra value, but you're going to get satisfaction out of doing it yeah. and out of people enjoying it. Um, and there is a great satisfaction in that. Um, we went round um, Aldershot um, with a group of colleagues and friends, and I walked up to one of the houses, and a woman was coming out of the house, who I'd never met before, but she was the woman who bought the house. And um, I explained, you know, we were all looking around, and she said, oh, this is the most fantastic place, you know, I love my house, and so on. And I kind of was embarrassed, you know, because uh, everyone around me was saying, you know, you've set this up. But it was, it was true and it was very, very satisfying and exciting. So um, I would say that is a big reward. Yeah. Um, and it's hard work doing this kind of stuff. So you do need that on top of um, 
you know, taking the financial risk and hoping you're going to get the reward. Yeah. And that process where particularly, I mean, the individual units, obviously we can understand that, and I understand your discussion about that. And as you go through this and you evolve your thinking and you're, you're pulling on the expertise of a diverse range of architects out there, incredibly talented people, what are you seeing? I mean, obviously these things aren't new and they do exist in the past, as you say, but it's still worth teasing them out. They're, they're generally obvious things, but they need to be expressed. What do you find works in the making of these spaces in a way that has that quality? Like, I mean, you know, how do you see thresholds? How do you see the nature of shared space, the, the, that relationship beyond the planet? Yeah, minimum? I mean, one of my great heroes is Eric Lyons. Yeah. And I think the span schemes um, are worth studying. And um, if you talk to people, for example, at Corner Green, you will hear um, that the children of people who were brought up there are returning there to bring up their own families there. And it's a, it's a very clever setup. So mm -hmm. it's, it's about the scale, the number of houses, it's about where the parking is, it's about the front and the back of the houses, um, it's about the management of the shared space, and it's about the sort of obligation everybody has to do stuff at the same time. So Eric Lyon used to sit on the management committee after the development was finished for the first couple of years to make sure everybody was kind of like understood how it operated. And that's a model I think is very good. So if you ask me to summarise what I think is a good start is to have something to share. I think it can be quite varied. Uh, but the thing that's shared should be small, should be modest. Mm. There's no point making it a great burden for the community. The community is often going to be small, and um, to make the looking after it the responsibility of the people who are there, and so they're brought together because they have a problem. I think that's a really fundamental thing, which is you've got to have a problem to come together to discuss and sort of, you know, get get some um, fire going amongst you as a group. It's so true. I mean, I was I lived in Paris for a while in a building with no lift. And just the problem of getting shopping up and down the stairs meant that you met everybody. The yeah. old lady living with her floor, yeah. you know. And, you know, you tried to avoid them sometimes. Yeah. But it, it really brought the community together. And this yeah. thing about it being a problem that actually galvanizes, you know, the mowing of a lawn or whatever yeah. it might be, is an interesting observation. And also this thing to do with the intimacy of this thing, which is that the scales of civicness seem to require a more empathetically linked first step, you know, this smaller thing that produces an observation about a bigger thing. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's intriguing that um, that conversation in developing more generally, these kind of observations don't seem to be something which is always understood or codified or, I mean, yeah. we've got a lot of regulations about so much. And yet here is there, there's a conversation about an expertise which exists in this country. And yet, like, is there any correlation between the work you're doing and people talking to you, say, on the level of social housing or the formation of policy or the kind of... The thing I notice very strongly is um, people talking about the public realm. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I can't say I have a huge enjoyment of the public realm generally. Um, what I find very interesting is... Um, a realm that people share with their neighbours. You know, I think that is a very fruitful kind of realm. And again, if you look at um, Span, you look at Long Lane, there is no sign there saying private property. No. But you know when you arrive, 
that it is private because the lawn is mown, um, it looks tidy, you know, everything is sort of, it has the sort of feeling that a group of people are here. It's sort of overlooked and so on. You would never think that is public realm, but it is shared for the people who are there. So I think that's, I think, a, an interesting way of looking at public realm, saying what benefit is there when you share a space? Yeah. And, you know, for the very big schemes like King's Cross, you know, I think there's, there has to be a question about how sort, of, um, how sort of bland those spaces become in the city when they're necessarily looked after by corporations and, you know, the, the same old recipes for sort of public art and fountains and benches and so on. You know, that's, that's what there is, but you are a stranger there. So, I don't know. It's, I mean, I, I'm full of respect for people who do their best to create public realm, but for my, in operating on a very small scale, I find at the realm of people sharing something that can often be um, the source of difficulties to be a very interesting thing. So I suppose it goes back to a, a conversation about privacy and community. You know, was, I spoke at the beginning about um, privacy as being something that's evolved over a long period of time. And I think that you know, the British, if one can use such a term, have got a very particular sense of community. Yeah. And you know, they are quite private, but they are also interested in community, but on particular terms. And I think that if you look at the last couple of hundred years, there are very interesting examples of community working in you know, a particular way where there's sort of there's eccentricity and the sort of obsession and the sort of boundaries. There are very interesting things going on which I find is a more manageable way of looking at community than saying, you know, what we really think is terrible is there's no sense of community in our culture anymore. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, what can I do with that, really? No. Well, it's too amorphous. Yeah. I'm sure. I mean, people need to interrogate it more yeah. because it, 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 it results in a thousand different questions. I, I do find it interesting that, I mean, in Dublin we've got a similar issue with public realm and public space. It is interesting to me that the most successful public spaces in the city, like truly public, were all initially conceived as private spaces. Mm. And there was something about the specificity that evolved from that that allowed them to be non-generic. And then from they were eventually given back to the city, like the Georgian Square, for instance. Mm. Um, they have a much more meaningful connection with people than if they were just initially conceived as a... Kind yeah, I mean, that is a fascinating thing, isn't it? Like the, the gate's been taken down from Bedford Square. Yes. You know, it, is, it would be really interesting to uh, sort of have that, you know, explains more and how, as you say, the transition from that um, space that's shared by a specific community became a space shared by everybody. And, you know, whether that history was important... There's something to do with the... I agree with the King's Cross observation. There's something to do with the blandness or the emptiness of the public as a generic term, which seems to produce this conversation, as you say, to do with pop-up coffee and yeah. um, event as spectacle, as being somehow the, the ambit of that public square, which a non-programmed thing like a park in the sense of a Georgian square doesn't ever have those questions over itself. I mean, it's a question of maintenance and it's a question of all of those sorts of things, but never a question of what you do there. Yeah. I mean, why, why would you ever ask what you do there? Yeah. <laughs> Whereas we, we did some work at, 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 at King's Cross a while ago for the London Festival, a temporary thing, and the conversations around the space and advances that, you know, we have to bring people here, we have to give a reason to be there. And mm. kind of going, 
that might be an issue if that has to be the question. Mm. And that's not a critique, it's just more an observation. I mean, I slightly disagree with, say, Luigi Snazzi, who says that you should start with a public square in your education or a public space, and you should end up with your thesis, which should be a house, because the house is the most nuanced, most compromised, most contingent piece of architecture there is, and so you need to be that skilled to do it. I agree with that observation. But then, say, only then, once you've done the house, you should return and redesign the square in a way, mm. with that with that in your head. And that kind of confusion between the easy gesture and the of the seemingly open plaza, for instance, or whatever, and actually what it might mean to make some sense of connection with that or placedness in that. Which is interesting because, to bring us back to the initial one, those things aren't present if you say, this is a shared garden for seven houses or ten houses or something like that. There's an immediate thing there that allows one just to start work. Mm. And you can, you can immediately get going. And if at the end of that it ends up being public, it still works. Yeah. Which I find curious. Yeah. yeah. And it's the fundamental problem of, of, group, of, of housing is this question of intimacy becoming broadly available and somehow generative community or of a civic society, which is exactly that question about the discrete unit meeting. Yeah. I mean, I quite like the idea of looking at, at community as being... Um, a thing that is challenging for people you know, rather than the idea that community is something that everyone wants and embraces I like the idea of it being a challenge and being something that people are not that, you know, not that clear about whether it's um, something they want to embrace or not because I think that's very much our tradition you know, it's, sort of, it's a sort of um, slightly embarrassed approach to community which I think is you know, a sort of interesting way of thinking about it so you're sort of saying there are these good things about it, but there are also these rather bad things about it. You know, what do you kind of feel and how are we going to get along? That's interesting about embarrassment or about friction in yeah. a way as being the thing which is generative of this. It is the person in your way at the door. It yeah. is the cluster of Spanish students outside the staircase to the tube. Yeah. I mean, the city generates its frustrations and therefore its great beauty in these frictive moments and what is interesting to me is how people seem to be socially engaged with architecture that way and that people seem to like standing or grouping in these kind of intimate threshold-like spaces i mean it's always the least convenient space I and mean, mm. how often do you see a group of people spontaneously standing in the middle of a square in Queen's yeah. cross they'd rather do it at the door to the school of art or something and that's interesting because it goes back to your point about actually intimacy and about thinking about a calibration which actually works for the community you're working for and it not being about efficiency necessarily but being about another question. Um, there was a kind of, there was a moment, my brother lives in Moscow and uh, he used to travel it extensively in Russia before he moved there many years ago and he watched the lights going out in the slab blocks in cities every time he went back and what killed the slab blocks, the communal housing, was the arrival of the washing machine. Right, because the frustration right. of the washing communally and the waiting in line and all of that That's stuff, so interesting, yeah. As soon as you had a washing machine, well, it didn't matter if you moved. Mm. Which I found interesting, and it seemed to resonate with me. I didn't do any studies on it, but it seemed yeah. to resonate as being a truth of sorts, similar to the staircase in the Paris yeah. apartment. Yeah. So you have, to, you have to respect people's enthusiasm for the washing machine. Yeah. It's not a question of them not having a washing no. machine. <laughs> no. So it's, it's saying, well, you've got a washing machine, and... You know, what are, the, what are the future things that are the things that are going to bring you together? 
you know, what are the future things that are important? And that brings me to one thing that I think is um, important, which I feel very sort of old about, which is I do feel that sort of new um, forms of communication are challenging what we do um, in the sense that um, I think our experience is getting much more mediated from the um, ordinary experience of, of spaces and materials. So, um, you know, a warmer yard, I think it's a sort of like a very obvious thing that it's a place where you're experiencing materials and light and space. But then how is that actually being experienced by most people? Will it be experienced online? You know, they'll have some, um, you know, they look at design or something and that will be how they think that project is. And I think increasingly people's experiences are sort of uh, virtual and mediated in a way which is a challenge for us now. It is. So I've always felt the house is a place where you have the opportunity to have these very strong phenomenon. You know, you, the, the materials of the house, the sequence of spaces of the house, the light in the house, they're all things that are private to you and you can make important and you can shape. And, uh, you know, Jimmy Ead at Kettle's Yard saying, you know, the fundamental importance is the ability to say that the way two pebbles are placed is critical. Mm. And I, I do worry that, you know, now there's a sort of, um, you know, people are looking at their mobile phones and that that sort of, uh, that sort of intensity is much harder. I, I'm sort of, I'm not at ease about that. I don't know where it's going and maybe I'm just being old fashioned. But I do worry about it. Do, do you worry about it in the sense of the capacity of architects to calibrate things because of the easy availability of the image? So they tend not... Is, is, that, is it that worry or is it a worry about the broader public in occupying these spaces and appreciating them and building a community? I think it's the latter, really. Yeah, yeah it's the latter, really. I mean, the, the first thing might also be true, but it's the latter because you know, everything that is generated for us in commerce leads us to sort of devalue the all things that were important, I think. Mm. And, you know, um, this is something I might say in the lecture, which is, you know, when I was a student of Peter Salter, he took us to Kirby Hall, and it's the sort of like, ruined sort of Inigo Jones uh, time um, building, just at the beginning of the sort of transition to a sort of um, more Renaissance image of a house. And lots of it is sort of ruined, but there are some bits that are now enclosed and he took us to a particular room for an amazing bay window and there was also a big fire a fireplace and he had this sort of um, image of the light coming around during the day and warming the amount of the room that wasn't reached by the fire hmm. you know it was an incredibly romantic image but also very powerful and very sort of um you know made you think about light and heat and the fireplace and everything and then you think of um, the name given to the product that will control your heating with your iPhone, which is Nest. And you think, you know, there is a big, there is a big gap between the sort of, um, the sense of experience of those two things. Mm. And I think that is, that is a worry. And I think that we are uniquely placed to sort of um, say, these experiences in the home and in the way we relate to people around our home are capable of a great deal of richness for us, not mediated by technology. I think that that's true, but I think that there is, 
there's so much resistance being shown by individual groups. The, the issue being that they don't have the resources to, to basically act on the level of, uh, of, of where they might live. So there's a kind of, if we, you know, it's true of my generation, but particularly true of people younger than me, and it's students that are all around us here in the school that, teach, that we're teaching. And that their forced nomadicism is a more prolonged experience than it was for me, simply to do with the contingencies of economics and family and all of the kind of social armatures of the state, which are, I mean, it's been voted for, so they're being willingly removed, Yeah, the props. And so the tethering of oneself to something which is comparatively cheap, a network of socially activated people on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on an electronic device is simply a kind of a band-aid of sorts. And it has great utility too. Yeah, no, for sure. But what I get great heart out is if you see the kind of, you know, the live music scene or the food scene, mm. which is all completely the opposite. It's tethered and grounded and yeah. has, and even in terms of activist scene, now, it hasn't got a galvanising force, and the economic mountain for it to climb is that much greater. But I do believe that the things that you're talking about are essentials when found, when you can actually connect with them. Mm. And the trouble is it's much harder for people to meaningfully connect them in a way that they can think of long, long term. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just, we just bought a house, and just the experience of buying a house was just so stressful and awful. Yeah. And it's also such a lottery where you end up living, in a way. Yeah. And then, of course, now we're here and we're never going to move because we never want to do that again and we want to invest in... But I'm 38 and that's the first house I've bought. And that's yeah, not... And, that's, that's I, and I feel lucky, actually. Mm. I mean, not everybody gets there. And I find that really interesting. I think what you're saying is true, but the conversation isn't happening on a political level at the level, say, of a governmental conversation. What I, what I find really interesting about some of the things you're talking about as well is they link to critiques I would have about building regulations which is, of course, we all understand the necessity for fire regulations and also lift access to all the floors. But the fire lobby and the lift, if they occur in the wrong order, have a particular effect on an apartment building than if they occur, say, with the staircases first. And those subtle decisions, which are nuanced decisions to do with architecture fundamentally and an ethical position on architecture, they're not dialed into codes. They're not really understood on that level. And actually, they inevitably, the codes have taken their cheapest sense, generally present the lift before the stairs because it's simply more efficient layout, which has another effect. You know, you, people act differently on, in a lift for whatever mm, reason. Yeah. And I think that there's a, there's, there's a speaking back kind of required, which is the knowledge that you're describing, maybe also linked to schools of architecture talking about that, about these truths, because they are also truths. And that they, they're not expensive things. No. No. No, I mean, I think um, the, the sort of uh, Jimmy Eads book, you know, I think it's called A Way of Life, is, um, you know, he didn't spend any money on it. You know, he had no money. Yeah. So it was all about things that he found or that he was given. And yet he made this incredibly rich spiritual life from it. So I think that, you know, you should, you should kind of be able to do that anywhere. Yeah. You know, however temporary it is. Just... But I, I think it's recognizing that they can do something for you. But that's the danger that I feel that um, you know all the other things are replacing it. And slightly off that topic, but if we look at your kind of um, trajectory of developing and building in the eighties, and then a decision to go to the AA, 
how how was that? How did that work? And was it enjoyable? Uh, I think I think it was really generated by the idea that um, making money was bad for the soul. Okay. You know that it was sort of it was becoming something that would become an end in itself, and that was not going to be satisfying. And um, the A was a very good place for someone like me in the sense that you could be um, doing other stuff. You know, I was working, I had a family. You know, there wasn't that much time I could devote to the AA, but um, you could kind of find a way through. Um, I think what was bad about it for me was that you could find a way through and you could end up after five years coming out the door and kind of really being none the wiser. Um, and that's definitely what I felt, you know, that I'd sort of done the course, but I didn't really feel like I was an architect. Um, and I think that if I had had less other commitments, I would have had, um, I would have felt I had more time to sort of, you know, maybe go and work for another architect, uh, um, you know, kind of find my feet as a designer, um, which, you know, I didn't do. Um, so in a way it was, it was good because I kind of learned about what architecture is, um, but in a way I was too busy with other things to really kind of um, throw myself into it properly. And I think that the, the project with Peter at Warmer Yard is, was very much a sort of continuing my education with Peter. But Peter taught you in the AA. Yeah, yeah. so um, I was in his unit for two years and I do feel that the process of doing a building with him really kind of taught me again what he had been teaching me the first time, which I hadn't really, hadn't really sort of sunk in to any very profound level. And what was that like? You, when was the phone call? When was the, when did that conversation? I begin? think Peter and I had kept in touch. You know that um, we would like to do a project together, and you know we are very much chalk and cheese. You know he's this sort of very um, sort of quiet, serious, sort of um, intent person. And I'm much more of a sort of butterfly and sort of like lots of different things going on and, you know, um, like being busy with different things. And I think we both felt this would be a good contrast to bring, you know, both of us coming together to do the project. Um, and there was a uh, Warmer Yard was a property that I actually bought in sort of the mid 80s and did a small business units there, which I let on 15 year leases. And at the time, I kind of felt, you know, 15 years is like the end of the world. <laughs> but, you know, of course, it does come round. And so, you know, then they were empty in the early 2000s. And I thought, well, this is, a, this is the time to do a project with Peter. Because, you know, I sort of paid for the land a long time ago. And, you know, we can start in a patient way, which is going to be necessary. And it's extraordinary because as a student, many who never met Peter were educated by him. You know, his drawings and those early projects. Yeah. And then there was this hiatus, and of course you heard from them, but they were more like echoes, and it's just a remarkable thing, and you hear that this thing is happening, that Peter Salter is building something. Yeah. And can it be? Is it true? Yeah. I mean, were you aware, presumably, of that, bringing Peter and getting him to do a building in the UK for the first time? Is it his first Yeah, I think it's his first sort of proper building in the UK. Um, yeah, I suppose we sort of um, trusted each other, really. You know, having having sort of been quite wary about each other while we were at the AA. So I think he felt, you know, I had a degree in another subject. You know, he felt always very embarrassed by using words. You know, it was always um, it was always sort of an, you know texts and things were always things that made him very nervous. 
because he was really the man who drew things. Yeah. Um, but I was very familiar with texts, you know, so I, was, I would always produce very sort of um, articulate justifications for whatever my project was. And he would be sort of like pacing around it and sort of like dissatisfied, but not necessarily able to sort of express what was worrying him. So I think, you know, it, um, there were lots of ironies in that, you know, I'd qualified as an architect and he never qualified as an architect. Yeah, but then he was going to be my teacher doing a real project. So, you know, it was very, very interesting. Yeah. And her, I mean, you had a front row seat in this, and you were, no, you weren't front row, you were on the stage. But you, this conversation with Peter then, how, how did that, how did it work? How did it begin? Well, I used to go to his unit at the AA, his unit room, and we would settle down with the plan and see how we were getting on with, you know, whatever... I said, let's try and do four houses. Um, you know, it's going to be around a tight courtyard. And it was really then him evolving his thoughts about how, what those houses could be like. Mm. So I suppose the fact that there were four houses and the fact that necessarily they were going to be, you know, very tight, it was going to be dense around the courtyard, was the sort of the first thing that was given. Um, and then as time went on, there were some things that I felt were too difficult that Peter was proposing. Um, so there was one occasion when I said to Peter, look, every bedroom has got to have a window that you can see out of. You know, that is a sort of, that's a basic thing. And then you can have louvers and other things and windows are different, you know, down by the floor and up by the ceiling and so on. But each room's got to have one window that you can just see out of as an ordinary window. Mm. So there are things like that where I think that, you know, he might have felt, well, you know, that's a bit banal. But, um, you know, that's part of what I've got to do. And then again, just that question again, because as a student, I was always fascinated with but there was this connection between the figure, form, detail, you know, the, the thing Peter does so well, and it's present in one regard. And so as those things are happening, does he work through the room to the form, or is he working on different elements of different things and allowing them to collide? How does that happen? I mean, it's a remarkable spatial event. So you, you see this firsthand. Yeah. I suppose that... Um, I think Peter would say that his... Um, th there are no decisions that are final until it's finished. Yeah. And um, he has worked with the builder, Darren Bai, um, in a very intimate way. And it became clear about probably about three years ago that the project wasn't one where we could have like monthly site meetings and have minutes and there was the client and there was the contractor and the architect and so on. So those things had really, um, they were no longer driving the project forward. They were just creating a lot of paper and a lot of arguments and um, a lot of things that weren't true really. You know, the contractor was producing a program and we all knew that it was, it was just a piece of paper. So what then happened was very interesting, which was that Peter would come to site on a Wednesday and he would just, him and the contractor would just sort of get on with it. And there, were no, there was no record of those, at least I haven't got any record of those things. And I wouldn't attend them either. Um, and yeah, that seemed to be a better way of going forward, really. Is that, uh, I like the phrase, the contract, you know, the contingency, and effectively, this was all contingency. Yeah. Yeah. It was fueling all of those decisions that were being made on site. 
And would they be adjustments, like the undoing of work done? Or just sometimes. Yeah. yeah, sometimes. And there were things that, um, you know, there were some things that I thought that didn't work, like a bedroom that didn't have space for its wardrobes. Mm. And then I would say, that's just not acceptable. You know, you're going to have to lose a bit of this terrace, extend the bedroom, got to have the wardrobe. And that, and that was one of our worst for hours, actually. <laughs> it can't have been too bad a process if that was the worst row. It was quite bad. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> and now that it's done, I mean, presumably this was, I mean, it's gone through, there was precarious financial times for the economy as a whole. I mean, did that delay Walmart Yard? Or? Yes, it did. I mean, we didn't start when we were ready to start because that was like 2007, 2008. Yeah. So I delayed really for a couple of years. Um, and then, you know, once we'd started, we were really set. And I think, I think that the sort of um, houses that they are are not so susceptible to, you know, house prices going up or down by, you know, 3% a year. It's sort of like we're looking for people who, who just really want to have that. And, you know, they know there's a price for that that they have to pay. So I'm, I suppose I'm less nervous about the market for that project than I am for a project where the things are much more every day. Mm. Mm. And w- where do you see, I mean, there's, there's huge debates about London and its affordability and the great things that have been achieved by the cultural melting pot that it is and, and that being under threat. Do you see that and, and do you have observations about how that might be resolved or solved? I think, you know, like everybody else, I'm very worried about the idea that, you know, we might be sort of like starting to become a society that isn't opened. Mm. Um, I think London has got such a big housing problem that whether, whether um, we're thinking that it's open or closed, we've still got to be building a lot more houses. And um, so what interests me is how you can uh, create that, how small players can do small schemes to help that. So I'm not really interested in the, you know, a regeneration scheme that creates 2,000 units because I think they tend to be terrible places. Mm. But I am interested in the regeneration scheme that creates 20 or 30 new homes. And um, I think there are interesting things to do about that. I mean, recently there's been more and more cooperative housing. Yeah, I think that's... Yeah, I think that's uh, so we, we are working actually outside London with groups of people who want to make neighbourhood plans. And in making their neighbourhood plan they have an opportunity of sort of um, saying the growth will be here in this field on the edge of the village or the town and we will say to the landowner we will put this field into the neighbourhood plan on the basis that we will buy it and develop it for ourselves. Okay. So it's sort of using, using the planning system to create value for the community as their own equity really. And so you, and you're actually trying this out in a yeah. place? Yeah, it's quite long-winded because people are, people are um, well, for a start, they're suspicious of a developer. Yeah. So we're doing it on a pro bono basis. But um, they're also, you know, making a neighbour plan is no light task. Yeah. And then you've got to make another jump to saying, we'll also be the developer of our future. But to me, it's sort of, I can see how it uh, continues a thread of development about how housing provision has become sort of democratised. And so, the, so, so it seems to me to be logical that that would be a thing that happens, you know, that planning, planning gain stays in the community rather than goes to the landowner. 
Mm. And that sounds like another prototype. Yeah, yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a sort of. I think that's a suburban and rural one. It's very hard to do it in the city. I think. True, but it's also it's a policy prototype. It's a legislative. Yeah, definitely. Economic prototype. And I'm just interested, so you've, you've made that explicit earlier on in the conversation, you said you were interested in ideas being produced or that they would have been found in the past but reproduced in schemes that you do that you find believable and that they would become prototypes for others. Yeah. And do you see that happening or have you seen the evidence of an influence of some of the work? No, 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 I think it's early days. Yeah. Yeah. And, but that's something that you're explicitly interested in. I am interested in it, yeah, yeah but I, yeah. but you know, I, I'm doing what I'm can do and that's yeah but I think it's interesting isn't it because you know architecture suffers well we can't speak for or against but we suffer in this context of you know the monograph lecture the uh, the autonomy of architecture being expressed as such and then backed up by you know image placed blogs purely say yeah and there's nothing problem with any one of those things on their own but there is a problem when it becomes the orthodoxy, because there's not a real communication of the true skill that might be involved in the making of the place on the level that you described earlier. Yeah. And then, presumably, there's no parallel conversation either among developers about these observations. Do you know that you're... Yeah, kind of I think there are a few people who are interested. Yeah. You know, there are a few people, kind of likely suspects, you know, like Roger Zagolovic, for example, um, you know, who, who has trained as an architect and is interested in development. So, you know, there are a few of us who are interested in the same thing, but that, it's not enough. You know. So it sounds like we need to find a different type of forum for kind of conversations to advance this type of discourse in a way, which is less bombastic than any of the forums I described, um, and that might be a quasi... a place for a university or for other things to kind of step in and make those conversations, because they're interesting. I mean, Ireland, it's, it's off the point to do with London, but Ireland's having a not dissimilar problem to the housing crisis, but from a completely different position, obviously, given the depression the country's been in for the last eight years. But also a need to build social housing, and we haven't built social housing in so long that the knowledge bases on all levels are completely eroded. And it's kind of fascinating over here that you know, there's a similar conversation happening. Definitely, yeah. And yet we're in the city, say, our students are all at the moment making one to 33 models of Neve Brown's, you know... Alexandra Road, mm -hmm. the news houses and things. And there are prototypes in this city which work. Definitely. Incredibly brave prototypes that we, we're all aware of failures. Yeah. But the successes, bizarrely, in mass housing tend to be less celebrated than the failures. I'm not quite sure why. Do you have a view on that? Is it. The failures were so great, I suppose, mm. that we couldn't but acknowledge those great damages that were done to communities. Yeah. But the, the prototypes which did work actually did seem to get overlooked in the kind of broad sweep away from mass social housing as an experiment or a certain type of mass social yeah. housing. Which I just find curious. I'm kind of interested in that. Um, I suppose we'd better kind of move forward because you've got a lecture to give. Yeah. And just before we end this discussion, I'm just wondering, from your position now, there are students out there and in this building do you have advice for people entering into architecture today? Um, I suppose it's a question of um, doing work that interests you, you know, as an architect, and how you can achieve that in a in a sort of uh, 
in a profession which has sort of a, um, a route for you, which can be quite, I think, difficult and depressing. Yeah. Um, so I'm quite interested in these new sorts of practice, which are much more mixed, you know, where you know, there's a bit of development and a bit of um, sort of art and a bit of writing and, and a bit of sort of, um, sort of radicalism, you know, and it's all kind of wrapped into one. I think that's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, so I think if I was, uh, you know, coming out of architecture school, I would be quite interested in looking into that, you know, what difference can I make at a very local level you know, by getting involved. I think that's quite interesting. And there's a canniness to those, and a shrewdness to those types of practice you're describing, which is really commendable. That it's more than just this, the, the kind of amateur, how do I help? There's deeply intelligent people thinking very strategically and finding a place for this type of thinking in a world which frankly wasn't offering it freely. Mm. And they've kind of had to crowbar it out you know, the kind of things that Assemble and others are doing, it's far more than worthiness. There's incredible intelligence happening on all levels, including the quality of the piece at the end, but also how they're positioning themselves, how they work collaboratively, yeah. which tend not to get um, space to be described in schools because the candidate has to be examined individually, and yet we're all social. I mean, architecture is impossible to... It, it cannot occur through a sole author. It's just not possible. Mm. So... The ability of architects to act socially and communally seems to be a critical thing that tends to get overlooked in the rush to find the perfect project that might get the commendation or the president's yeah, award. Or that yeah, kind of thing. yeah. And I suppose the other thing that you know, you are an architect, and you bring, you make space for architecture in the world. So it's a, it's an architectural practice. It happens by development, and I think it does get overlooked that the diversity of 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 ways that an architect can operate including on the other side of the fence in terms of policy and some of the things mm, that you were describing yeah. earlier on, that the blurrier those lines get and the more people have agency to kind of invade those territories, I think the more these conversations become more meaningful, you know, mm. who do I speak to in that place to allow that to happen. Um, and one interesting thing that I was talking um, to um, Patrick Schumacher this morning, and you know, he's causing a stir with all this stuff about um, how more housing should be created, and we're working on a project with him about making planning applications for sites that we don't own, yeah. you know, that are owned by councils. And I think that's a very, it's a very valid sort of um, piece of radicalism, that, because you know, a lot of the councils don't have the resources to look at no. the estates they have, and um, they're there, and they're, you know, they are waiting for things to happen. So, you know, I think that that's an interesting provocation, which, you know, someone who had just graduated from university could do. Yeah, and it's actually quite an old one. I mean, well, not formally, maybe not on the level of Patrick, but like, you know, in Dublin during the recession, that's what a lot of people did. And they're really? still, and still doing, yeah, no, we've, yeah. Got, we've got friends in a practice and they've got pretty much all their work through that. Really? How interesting. Yeah. Because they kind of enable a conversation by yeah. basically projecting optimism into something that nobody had seen. Yeah. And actually, you brought up Patrick. So, I mean, he's saying some quite controversial things, obviously. Or maybe they're not controversial because maybe that's the way the world is going now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it's one part of a, of a conversation. Yeah. Um, but the neoliberal kind of context for that, it's interesting that... You know, 
this argument for the market taking care of everything seems to ignore an awful lot of uh, uh, truths, you know, that we've, many that we've just described. And I don't know Patrick, but he's a presumably very intelligent man. Yeah, I think he is, yeah. I think he's a formidable foe for, um, you know, the people who are uh, comfortable in their thinking about housing, you know. What I find really interesting about uh, about all of that is that absolutely it's great to be shaken out of your thinking. Yeah. But it's just not... Uh, it's interesting that Patrick himself embodies a different way of looking at the world, one that's not market-driven. Um, Zaha Deed is absolutely not conceivable in the context of somebody wanting to deliver what the market wanted. Yeah. For right. so long, Patrick and Zaha worked tirelessly mm. in the context of an unforgiving world that didn't give them any space to make anything. And they... They were the radicals with resistance and optimism. Definitely, yeah. And I find that fascinating that he presumably is aware of that and sees that. And then this context where he's describing that the market will take care of everything. I think, I think that you could argue that the way he's thinking is actually the same as he did when he didn't have any work. Because he's fighting the status quo. Yeah. So I think that he thinks that um, you know, there's kind of like a... Uh, regulation and planning and bureaucracy have made a very lazy system yeah. where um, you know, people who are thinking freshly about it can't get any progress. So I think it's, it's not actually that different from, from um, you know, endless projects that don't get built. I think he's seeing that he's like the, he's like the chap over here and um, everybody else is against him. I suppose it's, it's whatever gets your blade sharp. Yeah. And I look forward to seeing the result of that collaboration. That's very interesting you're working with them. Thank yeah. you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Register. In our next episode, we are joined by David Grandorge, the educator, architect and photographer. And I look forward to you joining us then. In the meantime, please remember to subscribe via iTunes or Acast and to leave your comments and reviews. Thank you very much.